0: Good mornings, I'm Chris Oaks, and coming up, computers and robotics in the workplace are nothing new, but today's technology is radically human. Is it time for us real humans to be afraid? Also this morning, in case you missed it, Blanchard Valley Health System family physician Dr. David Yoder discusses the concern over this year's spread of RSV among young children. What does hearing thank you for your service really mean to veterans? And how can we honor, thank, and support them more than just one day out of the year? And the U.S. military has long been on the cutting edge of innovation, and modern innovation in alternative energy, conservation, and resilience is no different. This is the Good Mornings Podcast Edition for Thursday, November 10, 2022. Today is Area Code Day. Area Code Day. Woohoo! Uh, <laughs> also, International Accounting Day, National Forget Me Not Day, National Vanilla Cupcake Day. Have a vanilla cupcake in honor of your area code <laughs> today. It is Sesame Street Day. Sesame Street made its debut on PBS this day in 1969, and it is. Marine Corps Day, the Marine Corps was organized under the the authority of the Continental Congress on this day in 1775. So happy birthday to the Marines and uh, certainly a lot of reasons to celebrate there. So uh, are we finally, finally maybe getting back to some civility in our politics? A couple of interesting things happened. Uh, within the last uh, 24 to 48 hours after the uh, election. First of all, I thought Dr. Dr. Oz made a, a very, very nice concession speech. Um, or said I don't know whether he made a speech or just issued a statement, but it was very conciliatory uh, toward John Fetterman. Um, in that uh, hotly contested Pennsylvania Senate race, uh, Dr. Oz basically uh, congratulating John Fetterman for winning the race and uh, saying that, yeah, it's time to work together and put the partisanship aside and, you know, move the country forward and so on and so forth. Nobody believes that that's all going to happen, that all of a sudden we're going to have this election and everybody's going to be uh, all buddy, buddy and uh, all hard feelings forgotten and all of that. And people are going to work together and come to come together and sing kumbaya in the uh, in Congress. Uh, but it was the sentiment that uh, you used to see a lot after the election um, very uh, conciliatory uh, concession by the loser of an election. But here in the last few election cycles, it hasn't been quite that civil. And so uh, that certainly got the attention of uh, some pundits. And then in a rare exchange of civilities between uh, both sides of the political aisle, the governor of Virginia, Glenn Youngkin, sent a handwritten note of apology to House Speaker Nancy Pelosi. Uh, it started with a comment that uh, Glenn Youngkin had made about the attack on Paul Pelosi, the Speaker's husband, at their home in San Francisco. At a recent campaign appearance, Youngkin said of the attack, Speaker Pelosi's husband had a break in at their house and he was assaulted. There's no room for violence. But then he went on to say, we're going to send her back to be with him in California. Um, he said afterwards that that might not have been in the best taste. He wanted to uh, personally apologize to Speaker Pelosi uh, and emphasize that the attack was atrocious and the whole thing just came out wrong, and uh, he wished he'd have not said it that way. Uh, Nancy Pelosi accepted the apology. It was just very, uh, I don't know that that was necessarily the most egregious comment, or the most outrageous comment with respect to the attack on Paul Pelosi, but it was it was big of the uh, of, of the governor to, you know, apologize uh, for something that might have been taken differently than it was intended, and so I thought that was. Are we getting back to civility in politics? Maybe on some level, and and that's probably good because new research at uh, Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center has found that politics elections can have an impact on our mental health. They were studying the 2020 election, which was particularly acrimonious, as you recall. And they found that uh, Americans slept less during the presidential, less presidential election cycle. Americans slept less, felt more stress, drank more alcohol, and experienced a negative mood in the days right around the election. Now, there were a lot of things going on, as you recall, in 2020. The election was only one of them, but it certainly did not help. Interestingly, non-Americans lost sleep around this time, too. Now, again, we're going through a global pandemic, so that was that was certainly part of it. But globally, people pay attention to American elections because the United States is, you know, the uh, big dog on the block when it comes to world politics. So it's not just Americans that are losing sleep. Uh, surrounding u.s elections americans drank more on election day and november 7th the day the election was called in 2020 um dr tony cunningham acknowledging that the election took place during the height of the COVID 19 pandemic is that despite the chronic stress experienced during that time in general the acute stress of the election still had clear impacts on mood and sleep so maybe it's a good thing we are Uh, Getting back to maybe, maybe some uh, civility in our politics. I don't know. Uh, Let's see here. A couple of other uh, interesting items among the first things that you need to know this morning. In the aftermath of the election, if you need some evidence that humanity still exists, that we are still capable of being kind to our fellow human beings check this out a video on tiktok made by the user dbon 973 a 15 second video that he posted on tiktok has now raised enough money for a walmart employee to pay off her house and retire devin bonagura first recorded video of the employee named nola as she sat in the walmart break room the uh, video racked up over 24 million views and because of the public outpouring of support uh Mr uh, Bonagura started a gofundme page for Nola and it has raised 170,000 dollars the amount that she said she needed to retire in her uh, in her video she was just tired uh she wanted to retire but couldn't Needed $170,000, by golly, they raised it. Uh, just donations from random people just to do something nice. Uh, Mr. Bonagura claims that Walmart asked him to take down the page and return the money to donors, but uh, but he refused. Uh, I just thought that was uh, kind of nice. I don't know the whole story. I'm, I'm sure that there's more behind it, but just something that you could do to be kind, To a fellow human being just because. And I love stories like that. So, Uh, This is what we are worried about today. We always have to have something to be concerned about. We always have to have something to be uh, wringing our hands over. A new report published in the journal Addiction says that highly processed foods can be just as addictive as tobacco products. Well, I'm not sure that it makes that claim. Uh, Let me uh, let me just read you the story here. It says highly processed foods can be addictive and labeling them just as we do tobacco products can save American lives. They say similar labels as what we put on cigarette packages and that kind of thing. Similar label labels could be used on foods to inform consumers of their addictive qualities. Uh, Ashley Gearheart, uh who was the author or co-author of the report, uh, said, given the widespread public health costs associated with highly processed foods, we would like to see similar approaches occur. Highly processed foods can prompt a dopamine response in the brain, meaning they are mood-altering. Uh, people also continue to eat them when they are no longer hungry, even if there are negative health consequences. So classify them as addictive. So, there we go. We, now, it's just one more thing we can be addicted to and we have to be concerned about. We have to warn people about. That is the uh, latest thing that we uh, are have, have to uh, worry about. The latest thing that's going to kill us. Where's that? <laughs> and I saw this on the uh, newswire this morning as I'm perusing the newswire for the uh, most interesting stories of the day. I came across this one And I thought to myself, this is definitely a survey, uh, something from the file of Duh. A new survey by a subsidiary of Fidelity Financial Services finds that 94% of Americans cannot afford their dream home. 94% 94 of Americans cannot afford their dream home. Half of millennials and Gen Xers believe they will never own their dream home. And I'm thinking to myself, well, duh, that's why it's your dream home. You know, have we ever been afford, able to afford our dream home outside of a select few of the ultra-wealthy? I mean, isn't that why we call it our dream home? Because we can dream about it, but we can't afford it? Uh, by the way, they asked, where would Americans live, hypothetically? If they could afford their dream home the top states of choice would be California, Florida, New York, Washington and Colorado. So kind of an interesting list there. Most respondents said that their ideal home would actually cost less than a half a million dollars and be located in a suburban area rather than some exotic location. Although it says here Americans under the age of 25 are most likely to say they want two homes, uh, a main residence and then a vacation getaway dream vacation home locations would include Florida, California, Hawaii, and Italy of all places. So I thought that was gonna happen, but the idea that 94% of us cannot afford our dream home. Well, duh, thats that's why they call it a dream. Anyway, there you go, some of the most interesting and buzzworthy stories to get your Thursday morning started.
1: WFIN News, I'm Matt Demchak. Your WTOL 11 weather. Plenty of sunshine expected again today with a high of 71. Becoming cloudy tonight, low of 52. The Hancock County Sheriff's Office says motorcyclist died after being hit by a semi. The crash happened at the intersection of State Route 613 and Township Road 123 west of Macomb. The Sheriff's Office says a 64-year-old from Macomb was driving his motorcycle southbound on Township Road 123 when he failed to yield to traffic on State Route 613 and was hit by the semi. The motorcyclist was taken to Blanchard Valley Hospital where he was later pronounced deceased. Get more on the website. The Ohio State Highway Patrol needs troopers and is removing one of the barriers to becoming one.
2: If you have tattoos, the Ohio State Highway Patrol is now giving the option to wear a long-sleeve uniform to cover them. This new policy applies to current troopers and future applicants. This new policy is effective immediately. I'm Tracy Townsend.
1: And you can get more details on the requirements to becoming a state trooper on the website. People are being encouraged to come out for the Veterans Day Parade in Finley this weekend. The parade will begin at the intersection of South Main and Lincoln Street at 2 p.m. on Sunday and proceed north to the Hancock County War Memorial at North Main Street and Center Street where a ceremony will be held. Then after the parade and ceremony, you can head over to the Hancock Historical Museum where local veteran and president of Flag City Honor Flight, Bob Weinberg, will speak about his service as a sentinel at the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier. Get more on the parade and the reception that will be held at the Hancock Historical Museum to honor local veterans on the website. Georgia is the new number one in the college football playoff rankings, but the Ohio State Buckeyes are still in good shape. Ohio State is number two and Michigan is third. TCU is fourth. The top four teams get into the playoffs. Dave James, ONN News. After a tougher than anticipated game against Northwestern on the road last weekend, the undefeated Buckeyes will host the Indiana Hoosiers Saturday at noon in the Horseshoe. Remember, you can always get more news online anytime at WFIN.com. I'm Matt Demchek with 1330 WFIN and 95.5 FM.
0: So, how do you feel about this? In his new book, Radically Human How New Technology is Transforming Business and Shaping Our Future, co author Jim Wilson, who is the Global Managing Director of Thought, Leadership, and Technology Research at Accenture, talks about how artificial intelligence is making technology more human. Now, Jim, when you say that, I can hear a lot of people say, yeah, that's what I'm afraid of. <laughs> so what what is your response to those who believe that this level of technology is something to be feared?
3: It's really not about uh, you know the robots coming to take our jobs. What we're really talking about is how new smart machines are really learning to adapt to us, to learn from us, to emulate us. Uh, in more natural ways so that they can help us, you know, in our consumer ex- experiences in the workplace and so on. So we're really seeing uh, a new generation, if you will, of uh, intelligent technologies, you know, they've been covered quite a bit in the media in the past year, just this past uh, week, there was a, uh, you know, a story in New York times about creative AI, for example, uh, and there's been consistently a drumbeat of uh, of coverage on natural language technologies as well, which are kind of the most advanced type of AI systems that we see nowadays, like GPT-3. Uh, but really, you know, so we're seeing these, uh, these technology innovations, these uh, AI systems becoming more intelligent, more natural. Mm-hmm. And that's really uh you know that's taking root all around us i would say you know if you know you're a high school or university student soon you're going to be able to study new chemical compounds for instance that ai has discovered hmm. in just the past year or two for you know for example you know there's been a 200 fold increase in the library of known protein structures that AI has generated often in collaboration with researchers. And, you know, we're seeing these more uh, intelligent systems, you know, in financial services and insurance. Right. Um, you know, for instance, you know, one company that we talk about in the book is called Lemonade, which is an insurer, and they're using AI systems to dramatically simplify and reimagine that claims process. So now if you want to yeah. file a claim... You can actually have a conversation with an AI system, and the AI can actually settle the claim. And if the AI doesn't understand the nature of the the claim, it'll the system will move you over to a uh, to a human agent to help with that uh, discussion. Or, you know, of course, many of us watch NFL games, and we're seeing uh, the National Football League, for instance, now using more intelligent AI systems that are actually modeled on the human cortex to search through all of its video content to make that process much faster and easier for its marketing staffers that want to create highlight reels and other media from those, you know, those tons of those hundreds of thousands of hours that they have of, of of. Footage.
0: Yeah. Now, it's interesting, too, because, and you kind of touch on this, we've had computers in every workplace for decades, but AI is kind of taking it to a whole new level. So how will this ultimately impact the workforce?
3: Right. So I think it's important to see that the direction of AI, in a certain sense, means that uh, machines are... Uh, becoming what we described as more radically human. That is, they are rooted in human capabilities. The way they sense, comprehend, act, and learn is becoming, in a sense, more human-like in a way that, in the workplace, these tools can actually augment workers. Uh, and you know, certainly, workers are going to be very important in terms of how to apply these technologies and how to innovate with these technologies. And we also see that these technologies are revolutionary. They're, they're creating, uh, really interesting new types of jobs and they're making the jobs that we have today, uh, in many senses more valuable. I think all you need to do is go up onto a job site, uh, these days, you know, like indeed.com and you start to see new types of work and new types of job descriptions on, you know, on these sites. So, um, and that's, you know, and these jobs are actually entering the workforce at scale jobs with titles like, you know, explainable machine learning engineer, which is a job we're seeing more and more in financial services. And that job is really focused on applying AI in a trustworthy way. Similarly, you know, um, robot minders or autonomous car trainers. And we see those all over. I live out in the Bay Area and we see, you know, autonomous cars now being trained by these car trainers Mm. and AI safety engineers. Well, really unprecedented new types of jobs uh, are coming into companies. And at the same time, we're seeing that companies that are uh, investing in their people in the right way are actually Finding ways to bring AI into today's jobs. You know, so if you're a marketer, for instance, you can, you can go and, you know, download an API to a cloud provider and start using AI systems, um, to do kind of customer classification analysis or customer cluster analysis in ways that you just weren't able to do before. And in many senses, because these systems are uh, becoming more natural they're becoming much easier to use uh, in a sense for that marketer or for that person working on the factory floor yeah and uh, you know increasingly you don't you don't need to be you don't need to be an expert in a programming language or in data science to run these machines they're, yeah they're becoming pretty
0: pretty easy to use to uh, to underscore the one of the main points of the book maybe the main point of the book uh that concept that uh ai becoming less artificial uh despite this it's not a matter of computers replacing humans you make the point that still it's the people not the algorithms that will be the that will still be the reason that most companies succeed.
3: Exactly. Yeah, we're seeing that, you know, when we talk to business leaders, there there's still that focus on okay, how do we adopt these systems that are becoming more intelligent, but I think they're underestimating the level of commitment that they need To really focus on human factors as well, we looked at an economic analysis recently that said that for each dollar invested in a new AI technology, companies may need to spend about $9 on on their people, on intangible human uh, capital, if you will, helping people become more fluent with AI, changing jobs in a way that uh, AI can augment some of the decisions and actions you're taking in your job. Mm you know, making, making these tools more accessible. And we talk about how to do this extensively in our Radically Human book. But the thing is, get you know, companies really need to have that level of commitment, yes, toward uh, intelligent technology, but also and more so toward their people.
0: Again, Jim Wilson is Global Managing Director of Thought Leadership and Technology Research at Accenture. He is co-author of the new book, Radically Human. Where do we learn more about it?
3: Yeah, so the uh, best way to get a, a, a download or an overview of the book is
0: Accenture.com forward slash radically human. Jim, thanks very much for uh, taking the time. We appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Well, so far, the weather has been rather mild for the early start of the autumn season, but they're saying that that's going to change in pretty short order, going to be very chilly next week. And, Uh, The uh, cold weather is going to start to settle in and it's been very much in the news. Doctors warning that we could be in for a rough winter for seasonal bugs like colds and flu and particularly RSV with young children being among the most vulnerable. In case you missed it on the program a couple of weeks ago, we spoke with family physician Dr. David Yoder at Blanchard Valley Health System about the concern. Dr. Yoder, there was a story making the headlines a few days ago that part of the reason we could see and in some cases are already seeing a larger than normal outbreak has to do with our natural defenses being weakened by the isolation of the pandemic and at the risk of reopening that whole can of worms. Do you buy that? I don't know.
4: If, if that is why we're seeing more of an uptick right now, um, I, I definitely would agree, though, that kids have been exposed to fewer viruses in the past couple of years than they otherwise would have, um, which makes you wonder.
0: Yeah, because the, the flip side of that, uh, because I also want to put that argument in perspective, it does not mean that we should not be proactive in preventing the transmission of any communicable disease.
4: Yeah, definitely uh, trying to take precautions. I think um, trying to make sure we're washing our hands regularly, especially if we're interacting with young infants. Um, the ones that are most at risk for RSV are those that are under six months of age or those little kids that have some pre-existing conditions that might make them more susceptible to a respiratory virus.
0: Is it really a nasty cold and flu season or is it just so much more prevalent compared to what we saw the past couple of years when colds and flu and such were much lower due to all of the precautions we were uh, we were taking so is this a return to normal and it just seems like a huge spike or is this uh, a, a historically nasty cold and flu season
4: this right now the way that RSV is looking specifically it hmm. does look like the numbers uh, are going to outpace the amount of RSV cases that we had in last year's spike um, and and I, I wonder, you're right. I think a lot of uh, kids are are going to be more um, involved in daycares, preschools, uh, things like that, that are going to increase their risk for infection. Uh, right now, the numbers are still relatively low as far as flu goes, but RSV is um, definitely in season uh,
0: at this okay. time. So mm-hmm. what exactly is RSV? What do we need to know about it?
4: I think one of the reasons we don't hear about it quite as much as cold and flu and um, you know, maybe COVID is, is because it doesn't tend to affect, uh, you know, adults as much as it does um, for, you know, kids under the age of two, and most specifically, kids under the age of six months. Um, they're the ones that tend to get more uh, of the severe symptoms. So it tends to attack the small airways in your lungs. Um, these airways are called bronchioles. And when it's there, it creates a lot of swelling in those small airways. Now for little kids, those airways are a lot smaller than those air, the airways are for you or I. Um, and, and so that swelling actually has a greater impact on the way that they feel and the way that their symptoms
0: present. I've also heard, and it certainly makes sense, that uh, young infants uh, obviously have, uh, their lungs are less developed and they can't expectorate uh, that uh, stuff uh, in their Mm -hmm. lungs as easily as adults can.
4: Yeah, absolutely. I would agree. And so, um, you know, that's, that's something that we just need to be mindful of is is during RSV season, these are the kids that are a little bit more vulnerable and, and just watching out, making sure that, uh, you know, we're taking those precautions to keep them safe, I think is a great idea.
0: Yeah, so bottom line it for us here, what are you telling your patients about these seasonal bugs for this winter? What are the best practices? What should we be doing and conversely not doing?
4: I think it's always a, a courteous idea. You know, if you are feeling sick, especially if you're having fevers, um, or if you're having uncontrolled cough, some of these symptoms, I think it's always a good idea just to um, to try to limit your social interaction. I know it's, you know, I'm a social person. I enjoy being around family and friends, and um, it's not something that you want to miss out on. But also, you know, if you're, if you're feeling poorly, I think it's a good idea to stay home um, until you're feeling a little bit better. Another thing would be um, just trying to make sure that you know, RSV, there's not necessarily an immunization that we can uh, get for it, but I think it's a good idea, um, you know, to get your seasonal vaccines, whether it's flu um, or, or getting that COVID booster if you haven't gotten it yet. I, I would recommend it, and I think it's it helps uh, reduce some of the transmission of those viruses.
0: And also very important to point out that uh, whether we're talking about cold, flu, RSV, really any particularly respiratory illness um, in, in very young children in infants especially, nothing to mess around with. Uh, It's uh, definitely uh, important to get a hold of your doctor and and make sure that you get this uh, addressed. I would
4: agree with that. You know, things to look out for would be If your child is getting extremely short of breath, you know, taking a lot more breaths than usual, um, or seems very labored when taking those breaths, really sucking in under the ribs and um, appears distressed, that would be definitely a reason to call your physician um, or to take your kid to the ER. Um, And just making sure you're making your uh, doctor or nurse practitioner that cares for your kid aware of those symptoms, I think, is always a great idea.
0: Part of our conversation uh, from a couple of weeks ago, Dr. David Yoder, family physician, Blanchard Valley Health system about the spread of rsv in the community and around the country this has been a concern this year bad season they say for seasonal bugs like rsv along with cold and flu and everything else that comes along with the season if you want more information we've got it linked up at our webpage. you can go to goodmornings.net for that and if you want to hear our complete conversation with dr yoder you can check out the good mornings podcast edition you can listen to the podcast each day stream it from the website you can also listen on demand on the WFIN app which is free to download from the app store and google play and you can subscribe for free wherever you get your podcasts uh, our full conversation with uh, Dr Yoder about RSV and other seasonal respiratory illnesses was from October the 28th which was uh, a couple of weeks ago so you can uh, scroll back and find that show to hear the uh, full interview Honoring veterans, honoring those who have served and sacrificed as we come up on Veterans Day. Hancock County Veteran Services Officer Nicole Coleman is with us in the uh, studio this morning. Nicole, thanks for very much for uh, joining us. And happy Veterans Day. Thank you. Now, Good morning. What does... I? I I'm kind of uh, curious uh, the the mindset of veterans. I mean, sometimes on on Veterans Day, it's always nice to be appreciated for for what you do, and people coming out and saying thank you for your service. But it's also I don't know. Uh, it, it can be weird sometimes. Uh, <laughs> I know talking to my, my boys, as uh, as you know, as most people know, my boys have both served, and, and uh, they, they tell me sometimes it's weird when people just come up randomly and say, thank you for your service. Sometimes.
2: Yeah, and I think that it is, for me, it's been really interesting watching how differently each generation is about it. Yeah. And I don't know if it's because of their era of service, or is it just yeah. because, as you get older, you get more comfortable with it or mm-hmm. or what it is yeah um for me, my favorite part of Veterans Day, honestly is like going to all of the things, yeah, where I feel like I'm at a chow hall with <laughs> my people, <laughs>
0: yeah, you yeah. know,
2: and I don't mind waiting because it means I just get to spend more time with my people mm-hmm. um but I also know that. Some veterans, one I was talking to the other day, I was asking him where he was going to go, and he said, you know, I stay home. I really wish there was a way I could gift my free meal to someone mm. who needs food. And that that really, I had not heard someone say that before, but it really spoke to me of – the nature of veterans in mm-hmm. serving. Yeah. Dedicated Oftentimes, to serving others. Right.
0: Yeah. It's yeah. What, drive veteran, what drives veterans to do what they have done. Right. And in many cases continue to do.
2: But one of the things that I think that people can do um, is, in addition to thanking people for their service, is ask them about their service. And sometimes people who aren't veterans um, – are kind of shocked to hear me say that, Mm -hmm. but obviously I'm not saying ask them, you know, questions about combat, Mm -hmm. but ask them what was, what are some of your favorite memories from your time in service or who are some of those really close bonds that you connected with or those people you made special bonds with Mm -hmm. who you still have a relationship with today? Yeah. Um, Because I also am shocked to hear how many people have, you know, been out of the service for 40, 50, 60 years, and lots of people in their life have never asked them anything about their service. And mm. I, I understand it's oftentimes because they don't want to ask the wrong questions. Right. But just asking, tell me about some of your favorite military memories. Yeah. Because we all have them, and or most of us have them but we don't want to be the ones to bring it up because then it feels like we're bragging. We're
0: bragging, right. Exactly, exactly.
2: You also are promoting
0: a uh, an initiative uh, called Operation Greenlight.
2: Yes, Operation Greenlight is a partnership between NACO, which is the National Association of Counties, and NACVSO, which is the National Association of County Veteran Service Officers, Mm -hmm. and it is to ensure that veterans know that they are seen, appreciated, valued, and also to highlight the benefits that are available through county veteran service offices. And the initiative began in New York last year. They did it across the state, and NACO heard about it, came to NACVSO and said, hey, how can we collaborate? Mm-hmm. And um, as the president this year, that was something that I was really excited to have an opportunity to jump in on. And it's been exciting to hear how many individuals are doing this, you know, with the green lights on their porches, but also, you know, local government um who are lighting their buildings green mm-hmm. uh, businesses yeah. that are putting i know the chamber even they have green light bulbs in their yeah in their windows I, it's interesting
0: the first time i heard about this idea was a few years ago and it was uh one of the uh, big box retailers i don't know if it was walmart or, or something else had this uh, idea and i thought oh well, that's kind of kind of cool and the cynic in me thought well that's a nice way of selling more colored light bulbs but it really does resonate with uh with veterans uh you know, when you kind of drive around the neighborhood and you see green lights on people's porches right. and all of that. So. Right.
2: And it just, it is a reminder to those of us who are veterans, we see the green light bulb, at least for me. I see the green light bulb yeah. and it makes my heart smile. Yeah. Like it makes me feel appreciated. Yeah. yeah. Appreciated, not forgotten. Right.
0: Uh, all of that. What is the one thing that you wish people better understood about the veteran community?
2: How difficult it is for us to reintegrate into non-military communities yeah. because there is such a cohesion in the military, and clearly we don't live in a cohesive world anymore. <laughs> you think? And um, but, but one thing yeah. that is really cool about being in the military is everyone has your back. And mm-hmm. I'm not saying there aren't bad experiences, but in general, even mm-hmm. the people who have Hate you yeah you know that they have your back yeah and and you also
0: in the military get exposed to uh, and get to know people on an individual level with vastly different backgrounds than your own correct
2: and you know so so that reintegration piece is um if people can find ways to help veterans connect with other veterans. And so one of the things I am really, for the next 12 months, really going to be pushing is for local employers to start VRGs, Veterans Resource Groups. Mm. And what that does is it gives the the employer the opportunity to honor and recognize the veterans who work for them, but it also gives The veterans who work in that place an opportunity to get to know who are the other veterans they work with because then it gives them that opportunity to um, find some of that brotherhood that we had when we were in the military. Mm -hmm. And I think that the employers are going to find that um, those employees are going to be more likely to stick around when they find that brotherhood. Um, in their place of employment.
0: What uh, would go into creating uh, one of these groups? And I mean, do you, can you uh, provide some guidance, or some assistance for uh, I can. folks? To-
2: so the National Veterans Memorial and Museum, which we are really lucky to have in Ohio, it's in Columbus, but they have some great resources on their website and we are getting ready to put a link on our website to what they offer. But really it is just HR asking all of the employees, please identify yourself if you're a veteran, Mm -hmm. what branch did you serve in? Mm -hmm. And then um, I will use, um, well, there's a local business who if you go into their establishment, all of the employees have vests on and the veterans have camouflaged vests. Hmm. And that is a way for the customers and the employees to recognize who are the veterans. Mm -hmm. I've seen in uh, businesses that have, cubicles or offices where their nameplate is, Mm -hmm. there would just simply be, um, their branch of service would be
0: on their nameplate
2: or a flag. Um, If you wear name tags, again, it could be, you know, United States Air Force Veteran. So there are a lot of really simple ways, and it is that concept of helping veterans, one, be recognized, but more importantly, to identify who are their brothers and sisters that work with them. Yeah. And I think that if we if we really put an emphasis on those veterans resource groups in the employee employee, employer world that is going to kind of spill over into the community as a whole. And uh, I suppose that provides a good
0: segue to uh, talk about uh, what you do, the uh, Veterans Services uh, Office. Uh, again, Veterans Day, a, a perfect time to remind uh, those who have served, and reach out to veterans that you can help with everything from aiding in that transition to uh, dealing with PTSD, uh, to applying for and maximizing your veterans benefits. You do all
2: of that. Yes, we do. And, Along those lines, I want to make sure I take an opportunity to talk about the PACT Act, which passed in August. Mm -hmm. You know, we all are bombarded with the commercials about the contaminated water in Camp Lejeune. Right, right. Um, And also getting a better understanding of the burn pits and the toxins that, you know, a lot of us were exposed to. And if people have questions, any questions at all, we would encourage them to come to our office. Let us guide you through um, you know, looking at those benefits, don't sign up with an attorney until you have talked to the local county veteran service office. And first. even for
0: those who, I mean, certainly for those veterans who have never uh, reached out uh, and made that contact, but even if uh, someone has in the past, you suggest every couple every, of years.
2: Every three years. Okay. So we, I say every three years because there's three things that can change mm-hmm. in your life that can change the benefits you're entitled to. One, laws change like the PAC deck right. Two, your financial situation changes, which might change what you're eligible for. And three, your health can change. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you get a new diagnosis and your, uh, your primary focus is on dealing with that diagnosis and mm-hmm. treating it. But that may also mean you're entitled to some different benefits.
0: Okay. Uh, and how do folks reach out to your office?
2: Hancockveterans.com or 419-424-7036.
0: Again, uh, Hancock County Veterans Services Officer Nicole Coleman with us as we uh, approach Veterans Day. Nicole, thanks very much for uh, taking the time. And as always, thanks for your service. Thank you very much.
3: You're listening to Good Mornings with Chris Oaks on 1330
0: WFIN, WFIN WFIN.com and 95.5 FM. We interrupt this program to bring you a broken news alert. Today's update on the odd and unusual side of the news brought to you as a public service, more or less, of Hancock County Veterans Services. Kind of a light day today in the broken news. We like to think of it as quality over quantity. But uh, we can always count on the state of Florida for something dumb, something weird, something unusual. Uh, a Florida man, 35-year-old James Hall, is facing federal charges after he sold a pipe bomb to an undercover detective. <laughs> I just, that story jumped out at me because, I mean, you know, what do you normally get selling to an undercover uh, detective? Dealing drugs or maybe uh, maybe guns, you know, selling a gun illegally. But a pipe bomb, in this case, authorities say the device was designed to kill or injure someone the investigation was launched last week when a confidential source told the Tampa Police Department they made contact with Mr. Hall about the bomb. Apparently Mr. Hall <laughs> Mr. Hall said uh, that he had contemplated using it on someone he didn't like, but then he decided to just sell it instead.
1: <laughs> I know
0: you know you just can't uh, you can't decide. I've got this pipe bomb I could use it for you know, on somebody. Uh, I'll just sell it <laughs> he ended up selling it to an undercover officer for $800 and is now facing up to 30 years in prison don't do that <clears throat> um, also in Florida like I said we can always count on Florida A Florida man back behind bars after he managed to convince the IRS to give him millions upon millions of dollars using fraudulent tax returns. Let me repeat that. 39-year-old Matthew Meredith somehow managed to convince the IRS to give him millions of dollars. Many millions. Mr. Meredith, who hails from St. Petersburg in Florida, was under supervised release for a prior drug-related charge. When he (laughs) cooked up this scheme to send in fake returns between August of 2019 and February of 2020. The claims totaled over. Are you ready for this? Are you sitting down? The claims totaled $170 million. Uh, I'm wondering why it took several months (laughs) to figure this out. $170 million. Mr. Meredith, who was living at his parents' home at the time as part of his supervised release, misrepresented his income. I would say so. To the tune of $170 million, the IRS cut the first check for $6,374,576.92 uh, dollars 92 which he eagerly began spending. I would think I, you know, I understand that the IRS is understaffed and, you know, they've got a lot of uh, tax returns. But I would think if you cut a check for six point three million dollars and ninety two cents, that that would raise some red flags. <laughs> if somebody's getting a six million dollar tax return, um, I think that would raise some red flags. Uh, Mr. Meredith bought himself a waterfront mansion for the bargain price of $2.6 million. He had enough cash left over to snatch up not one, not two, but six Mercedes at a cost of roughly uh, $850,000. And uh, then he was running a little low on cash, so he decided to send the IRS a refund for an additional $4 million dollars. Uh, This went on and on and on. Uh, Eventually, he was charged with money laundering, theft of government property, and making false claims against the government. Now, he has not gone to court yet, but should he be found guilty on all of the charges, he could be spending 75 years in prison and would also have to repay all the money. (laughs) Oh, man. <clears throat> at what point, that's what I wonder, at what point did this raise some red flags at the IRS? Uh, you would think, especially after you already cut the check for $6 million plus to get another <laughs> return for $4 million, now you got to think something's up. Now you got to think something's up. Uh, this is a bad day. This is a bad day story uh, from Kentucky. What happens when a truck carrying a bunch of chicken waste accidentally spills it all over the highway? Ooh, it happened on US 62 in Kentucky, created quite the mess and a very smelly situation. The Kentucky Department of Transportation got involved after a truck carrying the putrid muck. Somehow managed to spill it on the expressway drivers who initially traveled through the mess uh, immediately regretted it because it not only covered their cars and animal parts and stunk to high heaven. It also created a slick spot on the highway crews got to work in cleaning the slimy sewage and used salt to help dissolve the grease so the cars could safely use the road again. Local fire crews washed down the road. Local police responded and shut the highway down. Uh, Drivers are encouraged to avoid the highway so their cars wouldn't get bathed in chicken waste. Can you imagine trying to to explain that to your boss? (laughs) Honestly, there was a big truckload of chicken waste all over the highway. But man... So that's how you know that you're having a bad day. And uh, actually, that should be a story that uh, be a little uh, comforting for the rest of us. Because no matter how bad your day is today, if you have not driven your car through a load of chicken waste on the highway, just think, it could always be worse. <laughs> it could always be worse. Your day is not that bad, as it turns out. And finally, in the broken news this morning... This is just eerie. A mother of four in Pennsylvania was so spooked by a ghostly image on her security camera that not only could she not sleep, now the family is considered moving to another home. It's the story of 34-year-old Amanda Pitt, who uh, told reporters, I kept going back to the camera, but I couldn't see it anymore, so I thought maybe I was seeing things. The next morning, I didn't even know what to make of it. Uh, Ms. Pitt awoke when she heard heavy footsteps in her home about 3.30 in the morning. When she looked at the security camera, she saw what appeared to be a ghostly figure standing in the doorway of her kitchen. She thought it was maybe one of her kids at first, but she checked and they were still asleep. Maybe it was her husband, but he was still asleep. She said, I stared at it for a little bit because I thought I saw someone. She then woke her husband and sent him downstairs to confront the intruder. And he found that there was no one in the home and no sign of a break in. Send chills up your spine right there. That is uh, that is weird. My moral of the story there. Turn off the security camera. That's that's what I would maybe think. There you go. Uh, That is uh, today's broken news report. This update on the odd and unusual side of the news brought to you as a public service, more or less, of Hancock County Veterans Services. We now return you to your regularly scheduled programming. And yet
4: another major brand just announced is halting all social media advertising.
1: The two most overused and abused words in advertising are truth And trust. They are the two most precious commodities for all brands, big and small. As an advertiser, you have to trust your partners to protect
0: your brand's truth using the media consumers' trust. Radio, it's on.
1: This message provided by WFIN.
0: And now, your daily download the numbers behind the news and the statistics that shape our lives. The Mayo Clinic describes passive-aggressive behavior as, and I'm quoting here, a pattern of indirectly expressing negative feelings instead of openly addressing them, unquote. And if you work in an office, a new survey finds that you have likely already seen it in action, and chances are you've even done it yourself, whether you realize it or not. This is according to a poll of 2,000 people in the workplace 70% say that their coworkers are more passive aggressive than ever nearly half say this behavior has gotten worse since covid began 64% in the survey say they witness passive aggressive behavior from coworkers at least once a week with women noticing it more frequently than men fifty four percent of the employees polled say that they have witnessed coworkers gossiping about others behind their backs. It is a form of passive aggressive behavior. Fifty percent hear complaints and resentment forty nine percent see some coworkers getting the silent treatment. Ooh, that's nasty. You ever had that happen to you forty two percent hear sarcastic comments about themselves or others. And 37% witness dishonesty, outright dishonesty from their co workers, which is passive aggressive, more aggressive than passive uh, in that case, but uh, that's pretty large number 37%. Two out of three of those in the poll say that they have engaged in that behavior themselves. They admit it, they've done it themselves. 18% blame work stress for that type of behavior. say that they send friendly reminders. I'm saying that in air quotes. They send friendly reminders as a sign of their own passive aggression. And uh, 32% employ sarcasm and giving others the silent treatment in the office as well. And those are pretty large numbers. And uh, it, uh, I think, shows we have a... Problem with passive aggressiveness uh, in the office. Managers, take note. This is something you want to address right away. Something, not something you want to f- let fester. Well, since we are on the subject of the military this week with Veterans Day approaching, on a somewhat related note, you know, the military is almost always on the cutting edge of innovation. And innovation in alternative energy and energy conservation is no exception. As a prime example, joining us this morning to talk about the U.S. Army Reserve's expertise in energy and water resilience, for that matter, along with some uh, tips that we can all use to reduce our energy footprint. Is Colonel Martin Naranjo, Director of the Army uh, Reserve Installation Management uh, Directorate, and uh, Colonel, explain why this is so important to the Army Reserve?
5: Right. Yeah. Thanks for the opportunity. You know, when you think about it, energy touches every aspect of our lives, and it really does um, touch every aspect of our reserve mission. From electricity that powers our facilities, fuel that powers our vehicles, it's really hard to operate when you don't have a, a, a access to energy right i think everyone can relate to the disruption the lack of energy causes in individual lives and the lack of energy can certainly disrupt our force
0: certainly no question it's it's not uh, you know once you actually think about it, it it makes sense when we talk about uh access to energy energy conservation energy resilience and and so on we use those terms what does that mean for the army reserve
5: Sure, yeah. Under- interrupted access to energy and water resources ensures that our soldiers have what they need to maintain operations, whether that's home and abroad. Here at home, we need assured access during natural disasters, other times of disruptions, or just when our soldiers need to shut up to the facility to train on the weekend. You know, you think about all the extreme weather events we're having, tornadoes, hurricanes, wildfires. Mm-hmm. And as those threats, those that, that imposed on our readiness of our, uh, of our soldiers, just like it impacts our lives our facilities need to be resilient. And um, I want to point out here that this year's theme is energy resilience, sustain the mission, and secure the future. Because that resilience and, uh, and the con- conservation that goes into it is uh, is very important. So what are some of those
0: energy conservation solutions uh, that you have in place within the Army Reserve?
5: Yeah, our, our projects range from very big to even very simple things, without, of which I'll discuss. And some of the bigger things we're doing is implementing large microgrid systems in critical facilities, and sometimes those come with battery storage and renewable energy resources and and, uh, and ways to power our facilities if the outside grid goes down. But, you know, even smaller than that, you know, we have inter- enterprise building control systems that we do, which are that gives us the ability to control our HVAC systems within our facilities. Our reserves disperse over 50 states and 5 U.S. territories over 650 buildings, and we want to be able to control each of those buildings um, and the energy needs in those buildings real time from afar. And th- these building control systems give us that ability to do that. And then we also have a lot of armed reserve centers um, equipped with advanced meters that monitor energy and water going into the building. And those meters might be able to tell us if the, if we have a large water leak in the building when our soldiers aren't there during the week. And that, abil- that gives us ability not just to not waste water and get it fixed, but to get that building back online so it can serve our soldiers.
0: So, uh, how can uh, just average folks uh, then incorporate uh, some of those same energy uh, conservation and energy and water resilience uh, actions into their own daily lives?
5: Yeah, the Army Reserve is trying to make a difference, and, and I know that everyone can make a difference. You know, our, our soldiers are our citizen soldiers that, that live in, the, uh, in our communities. And I just want to let you know that there's things that all of us can do. Uh, first off, simple things, turning off the lights in rooms when they're not in use. In our modern buildings, these are the things we do in our reserve. We install um, uh, switches that have motion detection. Mm-hmm. And so if no one's in the office, it shuts down that, that light. That's a simple thing that people would do. I know in, in my home, I have that little space down in the, in the basement where my, uh, where my son always leaves the light on. right? <laughs> and I installed a switch there to, to shuts off that light and it's able to save energy. We do the same thing in our buildings the our reserve. Um, we, do, we also adjust uh, smart thermostats, right? I talked about the big systems enterprise building controls that control it. Well, we're able to do that with a lot of um, inexpensive technologies and, and, and uh, reasonable, uh, um, at reasonable cost those thermostats that we can set back the, the temperature in your home just certain time of years, or change it based on the conditions and help save energy. And the one thing we do, which is probably the simplest thing, is just to switch out any old light bulbs to LED. Um, a lot of our facilities are aging in the Army Reserve, and so we've done that in, in going to, uh, what we call LED projects where we switch out all the lighting systems, and we have benefited, had some huge energy savings from that. And I just want to point out that you know we try to be good stewards with taxpayer dollars. We try to instill systems that are going to have a payback, and a lot of these small changes that your, uh, your listeners could do could have a large payback for them also.
0: Again, talking about ways in which the U.S. Army Reserve uh, is uh, conserving and uh, preserving energy access, the ways that we can do that as well in our own homes. Colonel Martin Narano is uh, Director of the Army Reserve Installation Management Directorate. Where do we get more information about what you are doing to conserve and protect uh, energy resilience within the U.S. Army Reserve?
5: Yeah, I encourage all your listeners to go visit the USAR website, that's uh, www.usar.army.mil. And if you go to that website, first off, your listeners can learn a lot about the Army Reserve, where we're at, our mission, and how we contribute to uh, the greater Army. And uh, we have a banner right on that landing page, that if you click on that, it'll take you to another website where we have lots of resources. That could, uh, is some of the things I talked about today and a lot more. Uh, for your listeners to dig into on um, things that we could do to help conserve energy and make a difference on the reserve as a whole.
0: Really interesting topic. We'll have it linked up on our webpage as well. Colonel Naranjo, thanks very much for uh, taking the time. We appreciate it.
5: Hey, I appreciate the time. Thank you.
0: And that will finish up our podcast for today. Thanks to all of our guests for joining us on the program, of course. Remember, you can get more information about all of the topics that we talk about each day on the show at our webpage. That is goodmornings.net. Coming up tomorrow as we observe Veterans Day, behind every service member is a military family. Of course, it's not the same kind of service, but it is still a sacrifice that deserves acknowledgement and recognition. So until tomorrow morning, that is good mornings for this morning. Now that you've had a good morning, go on out and make it a good day. Catch you back here tomorrow.